This evening I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll begin reading at verse 15. We'll read also a portion from chapter 3. So please keep your Bibles open for the duration of this evening's message. But we'll begin at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and then keep it. The Lord, commanded, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined life, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now in chapter 3, let's go down to verse 9 on that same page. This is in the aftermath of the fall into sin. Verse 9, called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. 
till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here ends the word of the Lord. I draw your attention again to chapter 2, verse 25. You keep your Bibles open. This is what I want as our starting point for this evening's message. Genesis 2.25, regarding Adam and his wife, it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. May the Lord bless this word to our hearts. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to speak to you this evening on the subject of shame. Shame. Have you ever experienced shame in one form or another? I suspect that all of us as adults have experienced shame, many of the children as well. The Bible is a book about shame. The Gospel is a message about shame. Let me ask you some questions that may prime the pump, so to speak, in terms of your experience of shame. Have you ever found yourself saying things, either out loud or to yourself, saying things like, I sometimes feel like a fake, a phony. If people who admire me really knew me, they would be disgusted with me. They'd be turned off by what they know about me. Maybe you say, I feel inadequate. When I look at myself, I seldom find joy at what I see. I feel inferior to the really good people I know. When I see other people, I think I'm so much inferior to them. I feel as if God must be disgusted with me. I feel I cannot measure up to people's expectations. Or I feel that I will never be acceptable. If those statements in one form or another have been uttered from your, from your lips or from your heart, then you know about shame. Maybe you've witnessed shame in the lives of others. And certainly the text this evening speaks about that shame as well. Tonight, I want to focus upon that shame, first of all, as an alien intruder into God's good creation. That's why we read from Genesis 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and neither of them had shame. Shame enters in as an alien intruder. Secondly, we respond to our shame. What are the ways in which we or others have responded to shame in ways that are destructive, that are not God-glorifying? And then finally, and most importantly, how does God deal with our shame? God redeems our shame. God enters into our shame. 
and brings us to glory. Is that not, brothers and sisters, the message of the Gospel? The transition from shame to glory. That's the hope of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So those three things, if you're taking notes tonight. First of all, then, shame enters our world as an alien intruder. And I use the word intruder deliberately because God did not design the world as a place of shame. You have that very soothing rhythm of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and God made this, and God made that, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, meaning it functioned according to God's purpose. And His ultimate purpose, of course, was to bring glory to His own name. It was not to introduce shame. And then you have an abrupt change where the Lord says it is not good. Something is not good. And what is it? It's not good for the man to be alone. Why is that? I'll just say briefly, when you think about this, God created man to live in fellowship with others like him. Because as an image bearer of God, he is to reflect that communion, that fellowship that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit have enjoyed from all eternity. And if we are to reflect the image of God, we do not live in isolation one from another. So God creates a suitable helper for the man. Maybe you're asking the question, now why why does God do this in the way that He does? Why doesn't God simply at the very outset when He makes man, why not create woman? Now, sometimes the cynical or sarcastic answer I get is, well, God created the man and said to himself, well, I could do much better, so I'll create the woman. But, of course, the Bible doesn't teach that sort of thing. But they are not identical. They're complementary. They have different functions, different callings. The husband is to be the head. The wife is to be a helpmeet for her husband. So she's created in a distinctly different way. And I think the text does that in order to emphasize the fact that she is there to fill that void. She is there to accompany her husband, the man. She is there to help him fulfill his calling, to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it, to see that it's fruitful and prosperous. She is not an afterthought. And what happens when the Lord creates the woman? He gives her the name or simply calls her woman, meaning from man. Which, of course, in our own day, there are many people that find that objectionable. Don't define me as a woman in relationship to a man. I want to have my own separate identity, apart from any relationship to a man. But here she's simply called from man. She's called woman. And what does the Lord do? The Lord presents her to the man, to Adam, to the man. And what does he do? You notice in our text, the text here at verse 23 in chapter 2 is indented. And in the Hebrew, it's meant to suggest that here the language is poetic. I would suggest that what Adam does when he sees the woman that God presents to him, he sings, he rejoices. He's overwhelmed by what God has done. At last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And see the practice that we have in our own weddings. The Lord presents the woman to the man. 
just as we have fathers presenting their daughters to the groom, transferring the headship from one to another. I've never been as successful in teaching or impressing upon young couples that they should follow the pattern also of the husband singing to the wife at the wedding ceremony. Have you ever been to a wedding like that where the groom sings to the bride? It's a beautiful thing to witness. And he sings because he sees in the woman that which he was longing for. He could not find that in any other creature. But now at last, they become one flesh. And then you have that concluding statement in verse 25. And maybe you're wondering this evening, why does the Bible have this text in the Bible? Why make a comment about the fact that they were both naked and they were not ashamed? Does that strike you as a bit odd? But the point that the text is making is that prior to the fall into sin, that nakedness represented openness. There was complete transparency between the man and his wife. There was nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. There was complete and perfect fellowship between the man and the woman. That's the way God intended it to be. But then you have the fall into sin. And what is the first thing that they do when they fall into sin? They hide. They cover. They find themselves exposed. And the Lord asked them, Who told you that you were naked? And we see that the fall into sin introduces shame into our world. Now, I think at this point it's important to distinguish between what the Bible teaches about guilt and what the Bible teaches about shame. They are closely related, but they are not identical. Guilt and shame, you might say, are cousins, but they are not the same exact thing. Guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand before a judge. The guilty person expects punishment and needs forgiveness. And in our tradition, we are very familiar with the language of guilt. The whole doctrine of justification by God's grace through faith is built upon the assumption that we stand guilty before God and that God as the righteous judge has every right to condemn us, but does not. In fact, he proclaims us righteous on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is ours by by faith. Shame is slightly different. Shame lives not in the courtroom, first of all, but shame lives in the community. Although it may feel like a courtroom, Shame involves feeling unacceptable before God and other people. Shame involves feeling polluted, stained, tainted. Feeling as though you're not quite good enough to measure up to other people's expectations. Feeling that a cloud, as it were, hangs above your head always. We know that shame can occur because of what we do. But shame can also happen, listen carefully, shame can also happen because of things that are done to us. And we feel stained, we feel polluted, we feel violated. 
Think about the different kinds of shame. The most obvious, of course, is shame that comes as a result of things that we have done. And even then there are distinctions. Think of it pastorally. I certainly would distinguish, although there's guilt involved, but I would distinguish between someone who gives in to a momentary temptation, a momentary uh, time of weakness, they capitulate and they fall into sin and they feel that shame. I would distinguish that from a person who's finally exposed, finally caught, after committing sin, the same kind of sin, for years on end. And now it's been exposed to, to the light. It's been exposed to the public. Sometimes shame can occur because of trauma that's been inflicted upon us. Think about the child for a moment who's been told from a very young age that he's no good, that he or she does not measure up, that if only you were like your older brother, older sister, to be told you're worthless. Have you known people like that? I've known people like that. I've pastored people like that. Should we be surprised that as adults, they continue to carry that burden of shame? They've done nothing wrong in that sense. It was not that they deserved that sort of condemnation by mom or by dad, but they've been told, you're worthless. But you also have that which is more catastrophic. You have people who are physically, sexually abused. And they often feel shame. In fact, many times they feel as though they must be guilty of something because this was done to them. A parent, a family member abused them. Well, it must be my fault. There's a sense of shame. Sometimes shame can occur because of our association with other people who have gone through disgrace and shame. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Robert Caro's series of volumes on the life of President Lyndon Johnson. Uh, They're quite detailed, but they're a very powerful insight into the man. And I find the most interesting volume of that series that has come out so far is the first volume about his childhood in in south-central Texas. Because you find out that the events of his early life shaped him into the man that he became, even as president. His father was a very successful, prominent businessman in a little town of Johnsonville, or Johnson City, I believe it was called. He was also a political leader, highly respected, highly revered, a man of, of power and prestige. And then he lost everything. He lost everything. So much so that when the Young Lyndon was sent to the general store to purchase food items. The proprietor would say to Lyndon, sorry, I can't give you anything until your father pays his bill. And there was shame. And there was disgrace that Lyndon faced for the rest of his life to be associated with that poverty and to have the whole community look upon your family as pariahs especially a father, a leader, someone you look up to. Now he's a pariah in the community. And so much of his adult life was spent trying to ensure that he would not be humiliated ever again. If I had more time, I'd talk to you about what happened in 1960 where 
the presidency, at least the nomination for presidency in the Democratic Party, was his to take. Some of you may remember that. He was a powerful man in the Senate. It was his to take, but he delayed because he could not, he could not bear the thought of what would happen if he lost the election. And so a young man, a young senator by the name of John F. Kennedy received the nomination and Johnson became the vice presidential nominee. And more examples could be multiplied. But his whole life was shaped by that shame. He would never, ever be put to shame. And sometimes there is shame that we impose upon ourselves. Our perception of what we think we ought to be or what we think people expect of us and we just don't measure up to it. And so we walk around with that shame. But shame is an alien intruder. It was not part of God's good created order. So how do we respond to shame? Shame wants to stay silent. Shame wants to remain hidden behind the bushes, behind the covering. Shame does not want to be seen. It does not want to be exposed to the light of day. That's how we have often responded to our own shame. Please, don't remind me of that. Don't talk to me about that. Don't humiliate me with that again. What do Adam and Eve do in response to their shame? There is this awareness of nakedness, but now in chapter 3, that nakedness is not evidence of this perfect communication, this perfect openness between husband and wife, It's a cause for great embarrassment. Humiliation. Don't look at me. I don't want God to see me this way. And so you fashion for yourself coverings. Adam and his wife fashion fig leaves. We can do the same thing. We put this facade in front of us to cover. And I've seen it as a pastor for many years. I find it, for example, in Bible studies, particularly in men's Bible studies, where for reasons I don't yet fully comprehend, men do not want to open up about what they struggle with. Imagine if you were in a Bible study and a member of of that Bible study, a man in the congregation, perhaps someone who's well-liked, well-respected, says, I'm really struggling with marital infidelity. I'm really struggling with cheating on my taxes. I'm struggling with things that perhaps if others heard would say, oh, not that person. Not that person. This is a respected member of our congregation. So we fear that we can't open up about our own struggles for fear that people will think less of us. There's also rejection. A sense of once belonging But now you don't. Of course, you see that in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and his wife had enjoyed the fellowship with each other, but also fellowship with God before the fall into sin in the Garden of Eden. But because of the fall into sin, God says, get out. Get out and don't try to come back in. If you try to come back in, you will die. And we might say that the, the story of redemption continues that warning all the way through to the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Lord says to His people time again, a holy God 
cannot be near an unholy people. There's also contamination. You think of the book of Leviticus. The distinction between clean and unclean. Be holy as I am holy, the Lord says. That's really the theme verse of the whole book of Leviticus. Think of the way the the tabernacle and the temple were constructed. It was very clear that God could not be approached casually. If you think you can approach a holy God casually, you've got another thing coming. If you were a Gentile, if you were a woman, if you had a physical deformity, a physical ailment, you could only go so far into the tabernacle, into the temple. Even if you were a man, and a healthy man, you could only go so far. And even among the Levites who served at the tabernacle and temple, they could only go so far so that only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, God's throne room, God's presence, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he could only approach that throne room with a basin of blood. Blood must be shed in order to approach the presence of God, to be accepted in the presence of God. How do people respond to their shame? Some people fight. That is to say, because they have experienced the pain of shame, they want to inflict that pain upon others. Think of the bully. The bully who maybe was bullied before by an older boy. And now he's going to bully the younger children. Because he experienced that disgrace, that humiliation, that shame, he's now going to inflict that on others. Shall I tell you my experience in prison? The most difficult group of men to minister to in prison are sexual offenders. I think that's pretty obvious. They don't open up because sexual offenders in prison are often the targets of of violence by other inmates. It's customary, by the way, that when a sexual offender enters prison for the first time, he habitually is beaten up severely by other inmates. They call that prison justice. I've had inmates tell me that what the, the legal system does is not sufficient for these kind of people. There's even a hierarchy among inmates. You can be a mass murderer, but that doesn't rank as low as being a sex offender. But what I've discovered in the times, the rare times, that a sex offender in a classroom or in a private conversation will open up to me, more often than not, they will tell me that they were once, they were once abused sexually as well. And I'll never forget the experience I had with one man in prison at the Indiana State Prison. An excellent student who who wanted to know more about the Gospel, who studied the Bible, and yet he struggled with that sin, that temptation. And perhaps the, the most difficult words I ever had to hear from his lips were, I know it's wrong, but I can't stop. I know it's wrong, but I can't stop. What do you say to a person like that? How does the Gospel speak to a person like that? That's the great challenge of our ministry. 
So there's fights. There's also flight. People, people hide from their shame. They try to bury it. They can bury it in many different ways. The addict buries his shame. It dulls the pain. But also the person who is addicted to overwork or people who love to, to please others and who spend their whole lives trying to make everyone happy because they don't want to be shamed. Or there are simply people that don't know what to do and they freeze. They can't function. There are even some people who experience shame because they have survived trauma when others have not. Are you aware, for example, that among the Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, many, there were quite a number, who having survived the concentration camps and the Third Reich's violence upon them, the murder of six million Jews, those who survived, many of them, struggled with deep depression, and many of those committed suicide. Because they said, why is it that I should survive when my mother, father, brother, sister, when people much better than I, that they, they were killed, but I survived? How is that right? Why was I spared while others were not? And I want to speak tonight especially to those of you who struggle with shame. And particularly those of you who struggle with shame because of things that you did not do but were done to you. Or your association with things that were shameful but you bear no personal guilt. Have you experienced this? Do you know that shame? Is it weighing heavily upon your shoulders, and you feel that you're always walking around bearing that burden. And that you can't look people in the eye. You can't live your life as you think God has called you to live because you feel overwhelmed by your shame. What does the Gospel have to say to us this evening? Well, we see thirdly that God redeems our shame. And how does God do that? Notice, it's God who pursues. God who pursues. Adam and his wife, they hide. God calls them out. God says, I'm not done with you. I want to speak to you. And so when the Lord says, Adam, where are you? It's not because he's wondering, where did Adam go? He knows where Adam is. It's it's meant to draw him out and to talk to him, to confront him with what he's done. And when he does so, he provides them with coverings. And he pledges. And that's where we read the first gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3. Because God promises to deal with both their guilt as well as their shame. He will deal with guilt by sending his son, the Messiah. He will deal with his shame by sending his son, the Messiah. After all, how does God respond throughout the Old Testament in terms of the people's sense of shame? You have the Old Testament Levitical system. Ceremonial cleansings. The practice of sacrifice. 
of blood being brought into the Holy of Holies, which Hebrews says in the New Testament anticipates Jesus Christ bringing His own sacrificial body before the Father into the throne room of heaven itself, saying, here, this is for the guilt and the shame of My people. I think of the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. You remember Hosea, don't you? He's the guy who, whom the Lord told to marry a prostitute, an unfaithful wife. His marriage would be a walking sermon of what the covenant relationship was like between a holy God and an unholy people. Imagine the burden that a prophet must bear having to live that kind of married life in front of all of God's people. No doubt they were laughing, scoffing, nodding there, shaking their heads, saying, what, what a pathetic sight this is. And the time comes where Hosea's wife, her name is Gomer, she leaves him. You might think that Hosea could say, well, she's gone. I'm done. The Lord says, no, I want you to pursue her. I want you to find her. I want you to redeem her. It would have been one thing if his wife had come crawling back to him on her hands and knees saying, my dear husband, would you, would you please take me back? But that's not the case, is it? He has to scour the streets and the alleyways. Can you imagine a prophet saying at every inn, every tavern, have you seen my wife? Have you seen her? Only to find out that she has been sold into slavery. She's gotten herself into such trouble that now she's enslaved. And the Lord says, that's... That's not enough. I want you to go and buy her back. And so he buys her back and he says, I will make you my own again. That's a picture in the Old Testament of what Jesus Christ does with both our guilt and our shame. The message of the Gospel is Jesus Christ humbling Himself, making Himself of no account, and bearing both our guilt and our shame. Think of the shame he endured throughout his public ministry and his life here on earth. He's born under lowly circumstances. Parents were not married. That's shameful. He's born in a stable. That's shameful. He's from Nazareth. That's shameful. What good can come out of Nazareth? Think of his life and his ministry. With whom does he associate? What was the criticism time and again? The critics came to his disciples and said, why does your teacher, why does your rabbi associate with, with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes? We all know that respectable people don't do that. Good religious people don't do that. They don't dirty their hands with people like that. Come on! Certainly the Messiah doesn't do that. And time and time again, Jesus demonstrates that the Gospel has come to minister to the outcast and to those who are under that burden of shame. A tax collector, he makes a disciple. He befriends Zacchaeus, another tax collector. He befriends prostitutes. Go and sin no more. 
He comes to the lepers, the real outcasts of that day. He touches them. And rather than Jesus being tainted by that, He heals them. And then in His suffering and His death, Christ exchanges our shame for glory. Our poverty, the Bible says, is exchanged for His riches. Our slavery to His royalty. Our weakness is transformed into strength. We come foolish and are made wise. We are distorted and ugly and are made beautiful. Naked, we become clothed in His perfect righteousness. Unclean, we're transformed into holy. An outcast, and we become beloved by the Lord. This is, time and again, the message of the Gospel. This is the message that we bear in our hearts. This is the message, brothers and sisters, that we carry to the world around us. Not just in distant lands like Ecuador. We're thankful for that ministry, but I'm talking about even in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our extended families. This is what we speak to those who live under shame. I want to illustrate from several passages in Scripture how the Bible speaks of that. The promise of the coming Messiah, the promise of the new covenant is spelled out, for example, in Isaiah chapter 54. Listen, if you're taking notes, just jot down the reference. Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 5. Sing, oh, and by the way, this comes, of course, after that great exposition about the suffering servant of the Lord, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What, what's the result of that? What's the fruit of that? What's the outcome of that? Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Verse 4, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And of course, you think of the description of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, that sermon in chapter 12, the very beginning, to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. He despised, He spat upon the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I love the description 
of the Lord given in Psalm 3, verse 3. Maybe you know it by heart, but here's a description of God. The God who is gracious. The God who is the lifter up. The one who lifts up my head. Now isn't that a beautiful image of what the Lord does to us in our shame? The Lord doesn't say to us, well, you know, you created a real mess here. Now I've got to fix it all. But the Lord in his mercy comes to us and as it were, he lifts us up so that rather than our head being bowed down, our bodies being stooped over in shame, he lifts us up to behold his glory. That, my friends, is the gospel. And I want to close tonight, brothers and sisters, with a challenge to you as a congregation. Uh, Much of this sermon was based upon a wonderful book that I read during my convalescence from surgery last year, a book by Dr. Diane Langberg called Suffering in the Heart of God. Dr. Diane Langberg is a Christian psychologist who uh, lives in the Philadelphia area. She also teaches at Westminster Seminary, at least she used to. She's now in her 70s, I believe. She specializes in trauma therapy, trauma counseling, sexual trauma, but also clergy trauma. This is a woman who has traveled to Rwanda to counsel people who have seen their entire families macheted to death. Now, can you imagine what it must be like to begin counseling people who have seen such horrible things? If you know what happened in Rwanda, people in villages brutally murdered, village after village after village because of a clash between two warring tribes. And she has ministered in that. And her book deals with, among other things, how the gospel speaks to our shame. And certainly with sexual trauma, there is shame that has to be dealt with. But the very beginning of her book... And what really drew me into the book was a story she told. And I have to say, the first time that I read it, it filled my eyes with tears. And I wept when I read this. She spoke about or wrote about her experience traveling to Africa and visiting the West African nation of Ghana, right along the coast, along the western end of, of Africa. And she was with a group of people who were on a tour of a, of a castle or a fortress, I think it was, that at one time had been used, at least part of it had been used as a holding cell for slaves being sent on the slave trade. Now, the way that that fortress was designed, the lower portion of that fortress was the holding cell. And you had hundreds, maybe thousands of of captured Africans chained. Many of them died in that captivity even before they got put on a ship. They were brutalized. They were treated disgracefully. It's hard to believe that there were people who called themselves Christians who participated in that sort of thing. But it's true. History bears it out. Terrible, brutally, brutally sinful things that were committed by people who called themselves good Christian people. Above the holding cell of all things was a chapel a place where the people who worked there could worship. I'll quote from her book. 
Under the form of worship in that chapel in Ghana lay the darkness of slavery, oppression, and tyranny, all things that blight and destroy humans created in the image of God. But I think you know that Christianity does not look like being folded up with evil and worshiping on top of dungeons. Following Christ does not look like complicity with a system that butters our bread and fills our coffers, but is built on the backs of those created in the image of God. It does not look like praying and singing and giving money on top of screams, unspeakable suffering, filth, and death. Christianity is not calling others them, somehow unlike us, not human, deserving of their suffering. She writes, our guide pointed up to the church above. So they're in that holding area. She, the guide points to the chapel above and said, heaven above, hell below. But her comment is, I would argue, she says, that heaven was not above. For that is not what heaven does. What does heaven do? Heaven leaves heaven. It's place of comfort, songs, purity, plenty, and money to give. Heaven comes down. If the people of that chapel had truly worshipped God, they would have been in the dungeon, in the filth and the darkness and the suffering. They would have entered in so that they might bring them out. The church goes into the dungeon so that the dungeon becomes the church. God came down so as to lift up. God became like us so that we might become like Him. He came to this dung-filled dungeon we call earth and sat with us, touched us, loved us, and called us to Him. Is that what our ministry looks like in Pella, Iowa, Covenant Reformed Church? Not heaven above, hell below, but that we, by God's grace, having, having been redeemed from our guilt and our shame, bring that message to the hurting, to the broken, to those living with the unbearable burden of guilt and sin. And we point them to Christ. Christ who bears that burden in full on the cross. And in exchange for that, gives us Glory. Look to God, the God who lifts up your head and mine. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have delivered us from our guilt as well as our shame. And Father, I pray tonight for any here in this congregation who continue to struggle with shame, either shame because of something they have done or shame that has as a result of something done to them. And may we, as those who bear the gospel of Jesus Christ, go gladly and bear the reproach of Jesus Christ outside the camp, as Hebrews says so that those living under the weight, the burden of guilt and sin, may know the joy of your glory.
May this word touch our hearts, Father, and move us to action. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.